Can I now open this to the, uh, the audience who are here with us in the Hyde Room in Oris and Uxeron. Brendan O'Leary, as the key speaker, um, what did Lloyd George give us when he, when he gave us partition? Uh, I mean, we paid a heavy price in one way, but an inevitable price, and it could have been the least deadly alternative. It wasn't necessary. Isn't that also true, that a civil war could have happened in 1920-21? I don't agree with the thesis of the inevitability of partition. Partition was a choice. But I do think that uh, the complacency of a judgment in 1966 comes immediately to mind. A.J.P. Taylor, a famous English historian, he wrote, Lloyd George solved the Irish question in 1921, unquote. Now at that time, there's a, a functioning independent Irish Republic. There's no violence in the North. Um, it looks as if Lloyd George has achieved stability. What Lloyd George achieved was what the liberal imperialist always wanted. They wanted the Irish question out of British politics. But he only succeeded in achieving that until 1966-67. Thereafter, the story is bleaker. Uh, I think that um, partition was not inevitable. Uh, you have a clash of mandates in 1918. Clearly, the conservatives and liberal imperialists win that election in Great Britain with a mandate for um, some special uh, arrangement for Ulster. But quite clearly, on the other side, there's a mandate for independence, perhaps a debate about the scale of independence. So I think had there been um, a greater degree of reasonableness among the conservatives in particular, it would have been possible to have had a home rule inside uh, home rule solution, with the Irish Free State having the maximum autonomy of a, of a dominion like Canada, with uh, something like Northern Ireland inside it having devolved structures. That was actually negotiated in the treaty, but of course with the proviso that uh, Northern Unionists could opt out of it. So but I don't Lloyd George wanted a quick fix, didn't he? he and he was well, a fixer. He was a, a superb fixer who always gave each side the impression that he agreed with them and was acting on their behalf. Um, I don't know what it would, would have been like to have encountered such a person. He probably uh, would have struck you as far more honest than the, cu the current British Prime Minister, but a similar ability to tell each audience what, what they thought, what he thought they wanted to hear. And he got the border too far south. I mean, he, there was a boundary commission anyway, but the border was, if you look at the necklace of constituencies still, where the nationalists win the seats in South Down, right along the border, contiguous to the border, they're largely and have been over over the century nationalist seats? Well, the, the border, um, there's, a, there's an unresolved question in the historiography. Lloyd George offers a boundary commission. Clearly, the Irish nationalist negotiators should have insisted on plebiscites, on popular preferences being decisive. That was happening elsewhere in Europe um, as a result of the Versailles Conference. So it was a perfectly feasible model. Um, and I think the, this, the slight change in the wording of what became Article 12 of the treaty, allowing other factors to shape the boundary, then became an excuse for not allowing popular preferences to prevail anywhere in boundary determination. So that's again a, a possibly a lost opportunity and down to poor Irish negotiating uh, on that particular question. Theresa Reedy, um, given that the Northern, that the Ulster Unionists felt besieged, and they then, then did have a two-to-one majority, 
which was built in deliberately, um, wasn't it, in one way, politicians seek power. So they were, it was almost the least democratic democracy. It had all the trappings, and then it had, the, it had Stormont as, as a vanity building in one sense, arguably. Um, there are no surprises in what happened, really, are there? No, I don't, I don't think so. Um, I think the choice to move away from PRSTV and an opera majoritarian system was done deliberately to engineer the outcomes that actually happened. And I think when you combine that with the kind of abuse of electoral laws, it, it really amplified the kinds of outcomes that were inevitable, if you want, because of the choice of the electoral system. So the electoral system was always going to do that. Um, but it was copper fastened in many ways with some of the other changes that, that were built, uh, built in around it. I think it's interesting that you, you do get a majoritarian style politics also um, in, in the Republic, but PRSTV is a much more flexible and adaptable electoral system funneling votes. And over time, you get a very different kind of politics. As society changes, PRSTV gives very different kinds of outcomes. But the majoritarian system is, is more inflexible and, and it gave exactly the kind of outcomes in perpetuity that it was intended to do. Yes, Brendan, yeah? One, one comment on, uh, on this theme. Churchill had a moment of opportunity when the unionists chose to abolish STVPR in the course of 1922. At this juncture, they wanted to abolish it because they wanted to restructure local governments so it would look as if the border was legitimate. So he pauses for about six months before giving the go-ahead. So that was a strategic choice by a British politician at a key moment. They could have prevented the modification of the electoral rule in those circumstances. That probably wouldn't have stopped some degree of gerrymandering, but it would have controlled the degree of exclusion of other voices from politics. So once that precedent is given in 22, it's more difficult then to resist the transformation of the, what, what became the Stormont Parliament. Yeah. Henry Patterson, what's your opinion on all of this? And wasn't there always a problem for those on the left? To th they would show your flag would be the, the heckle, heckle from the audience at any of parliamentary yeah. meeting or election meeting. Of course. Um, the, this, whole, this whole issue of the balance between what British statesmen, British cabinets, do about Ireland and the internal regional balance of political and social forces within the broader Protestant unions communities. It's, it's, I think myself and Brendan will differ on this because fundamentally I think the, if you look at what happened uh, within the British cabinet when you get the ceasefire in 1921 and the beginning of negotiations between the British state and the leadership of Sinn Féin. The immediate pressure of Lloyd George on Craig is to go in to some form of dominion home rule in the greater imperial interest. But Craig isn't interested in the greater imperial interest. He's, he's interested in maintaining the power that he's established um, with British assistance, but fundamentally on the basis of that class alliance which was built up really from the 1880s when these issues first 
fir first emerge. And I mean, the problem for for people on the, on the left in the shipyards then, or in, in other places of work after it, during during the um, history of the Northern Ireland state, it varies from period to period. Um, there's a big upsurge of support during the war, again in the, in, the, in the end of the 1950s. So it depends on the broader conjuncture. I agree with Brendan when these other issues to do with the whether or not we're talking about in 68, and I remember 68 well being involved in these things, whether we're talking about reform of the Northern Ireland state, which we ultra-left people in student organizations dismissed as not enough. We thought it would open up a broader transformation of bo both states. Um, how naive we were, how naive. I should have known better because this is, these are my people, the people on the picket lines against our marches were people like my aunt and uncle, cousins, people like that. But basically, partly, I think, because if you went to a state grammar school like I did, the only Irish history I knew before I went to Queen's in 66 was six weeks on Grattan's Parliament and the Irish Volunteers. So in a way, I was easy meat for somebody like Michael Farrell and Michael Farrell's view of the world, which I, I shared for so at least six months. You were in the people's <laughs> democracy then, were you? I, I was in people's democracy, yeah, 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 yeah. I was, yeah, the ultra. The original uh, PDs, by oh, the way. Oh, the ultra, yeah. ultra yeah. left. People's ultra democracy, left. there was a time when, Lindsay, What's your opinion of the, the role then, the voices of women in all of this, because uh, that you brought out in your own paper, admittedly about the South and mm -hmm. pensions mm -hmm. and all that. The, their voices were really ignored for so long, weren't mm -hmm. they? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of complex because it's so, class is so important as to which female voices you were going to hear anyway. I think that the biggest loss, in a sense, was were all those lived experiences and what they, what kind of a state might have been shaped had they had you know, that any space for those for those experiences to have been heard. Um, so, and also, I think what I'm interested, I suppose, in is, is the way on a day-to-day -day basis a lack of of representation for women and a broader experiences impacted on people's, you know, whether or not you're going to get a pension, whether or not you're going to have to complete a pregnancy that for you is is, is difficult to do, or whether or not you're you're going to end up in an institution or or have a legal an illegal uh, adoption. So there's sort of for me they're all connected and. We tend to write a history that puts that as chapter nine. But I think it's fundamental, actually, to the way in which control and, and power was meted out in the state. And the, and the kind of the, the political dispensation is really important to that. President, you again mentioned, as you have at earlier, Mocknavs, the importance of, of literature and the voice in fiction to hear some of the, the voices we haven't heard from the historians. Would you like to expand on that? I think when I referred to it previously, it was in the context of immigration, I remember, is that if you want to get the feel and, and experience of immigration in its many different forms, you'll find it in Irish literature. I taught the very first courses in the sociology of migration. Migration wasn't actually part of the curriculum for until quite late in, uh, into the 1970s. In relation to, the, to this, I think the, the topic we're discussing in this Mogna 5, I think that there is, I have a problem, and that is that I, I, I sense a, a, a post hoc hero, heroism in some of the accounts that are best known. 
I'm thinking of people that I have to be careful, but not really, but the point about it is, when I look at Ernie O'Malley's work and I look at Father O'Donnell's, uh, the kids flew up and, and, and all of these, I have a feeling that what it has for me is, is a heroism that was invented after. What I'm very interested in, and why I w went for the diary in many ways, is that it's about food, it's about, it's, uh, it's about people being pushed. And I have to say, it was very difficult getting the information. We don't know how many people were pushed into any one of these huts. Uh, one uh, descendant of one person mentions to me that he was the person who arrived first, went nearest the window, and you just kept pushing people in. And there were up to 18 people in any hut at any time. There was a very important part as well, and that is, is that while the hunger strike was on, uh, the church has said that people were not to get, uh, uh, the sacraments were not to be administered to them. And there's a very moving part in it where a young man from Ballyfermid is very, very, very ill. The priest comes after four and a half hours and he says there's only three of us and there's three and a half thousand of you to be looked after. And then the others want to know what is he said to the young man and things like that. They say, told him, well, we're not supposed to be giving, we're not supposed to be dealing with people like you while this is going on. And I, 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 I do think that, I think that there's a, there's, there was a level reached that was very low in relation to the treatment of the people. I was in a, the difficulty I had, I said, it is known in the records, from my father's records and that, that why should, why, I, I, didn't want, I didn't want to ignore it. But I, I'm interested myself in how these, when, when, when the people come out of the camp and, uh, and places have changed, the estates are undivided, my father's name would be handed in to the police and nobody would speak to him after second mass. So the point is, people actually are going to to, to mass, uh, and they're uh, and but they've all they've got their land and they want more, and that that raises other uh, issues. It would be vital in the future, may I say, uh, for uh, the land commission records. They are just so important in relation to our understanding uh, social history, as to how how it works and. It, they really, it would be one of the best gestures, in my view, of whoever is, in, is taking the decision uh, in this period to say that, to announce that the Land Commission records were going to be made available for research. Yeah, because they are very rich in detail, aren't they? Extraordinarily yes, rich. Yes, and yeah. the, the argument that it's too difficult doesn't stand up because the portion of them dealing with Northern Ireland has already been transferred and is available. And they're on public record. The yeah, and they're on public record. Public record of Northern Ireland are making them available. Do we have a contributor, perhaps? Yes. Hello. My name is Martin O'Halloran, and I'd like to address a question to the President. In his address, he gave a, a lot of detail on the land question in Ireland, and I feel that the land question in Ireland is really told and captured in the eight and a half million records of the Irish Land Commission, which is a closed archive in Port Leash. In the Erectus debates in 1989 on the Land Commission Dissolution Bill, an undertaking was given by government which has yet to be honoured to ensure that those, uh, that rich archive is rendered available to scholars and, and the public. And you've published something on this already, haven't yes, you? Yes, I have. I have. Limited access to some of the records. Yes, I had limited access, so I have direct uh, visibility of the wealth and the richness of that archive. Yes. History, geography, sociology, economics, genealogy, and it goes on. It's like... Um, Lindsay described, it's not a single uh, 
single simple archive. It's a very complex archive, comprehensively covering all aspects of life in Ireland. I suppose really my question to the President, would he like to see the government's commitment of 1989 honoured? And would the centenary of the enactment of the 1923 Land Act on the 8th of August 1923, which is just a little bit over a year away, be the appropriate event to mark the deadline, yes, the yeah, deadline yeah. to ensure that this is honoured and that some progress is achieved. Yeah, President. Yes, I completely agree, and I think the choice of date, the centenary of the 1923 Land Act, would be perfect, and it would be a very significant, substantial uh, contribution uh, to, towards towards uh, to commemoration. And you're right. It's only when one looks, for example, at the Limerick Rural Survey later and that, and you look at the, that, as I said to these young farmers, and wondering, saying that even labourers are better off than because you have only have one person inheriting. And in relation to women, you have the, you have the category in the census relative statistic, uh, the idea. And when I looked at this a long time ago when I was doing sociology, what they were left is a room in the house, a seat in the car to mass. Uh, was in the when you look at wills dealing with the period where you've only one inheritance that this is as I, I wrote somewhere else as well what you had was that assurance of uh, a room in the house and a seat in the car to mass and your high nelly bicycle that was women in Ireland yeah. can I ask some of the younger students here is there anything I'm sure there has to be a fair bit that unless they would be very distinguished young students if they knew all that they learnt in the last <laughs> two or three hours uh, what have you what's been the most interesting new idea that you've come across? Um, my main take from Mach number 100 is of course the importance of self-reflection and as Professor Lindsay um, spoke about how women were viewed during the Civil War in the 20th century, um, what really resonated with me was the roles in which women were expected to play as homemakers and if they went against this role they were shunned by society. Also, the roles that women played in Ireland's fight for independence really had a huge impact on me. And I find the fact that they're expected to turn home to, as homemakers, um, even though they had such an impact on Ireland's fight for independence, I find hard to believe and how their experiences were not heard. It also allowed me to reflect on how much Irish society has changed since then in terms of how women are viewed um, in society and how women are viewed um, all around the world. Thank you. Anybody, anybody else from? The younger students there? Yes. Sorry, just stand where you are. Yeah, yeah, just. Um, I'm Lily Dwyer, and I think the most important thing that I've taken away today is the electoral systems and their effect on kind of how our country works and how the politics in Ireland work. Um, I think it was really interesting to hear about proportional systems and how they created more representation and about how disproportionality decreases with certain systems. Um, and I think that, especially among our age group, it's important for us to be able to have an understanding of that, not just knowing about it, but actually being able to understand it and kind of take it in and use it to kind of form our own opinions rather than just going by what's in our books or what we hear other people say. Right. Thank you for both of those. Um, Lindsay, do you want to comment on that? 
Well, just when I when I when I hear their feedback, I just think the future is safe. Sorry, but you both so articulate and and you really just took such great great points from the papers, and it's fantastic. It's just fantastic. That's all. Sorry, yeah. I was just and so the importance, of course, of history at second level, it's, yeah. and to all levels in, in our schools is important, isn't it? Mm. Is Brendan? Yes. I'd like to make two comments on uh, proportional representation, since you've given an opportunity. Um, Teresa gave a very good and accurate exposition. I think that the term first past the post is complete propaganda. It implies there's a fixed post which the horses have to race by and the horse that gets past the post first wins. It sounds fair. That's an absolutely inaccurate description of the system because the winner could have 2% of the vote, they could have 98% of the vote. It's the winner who takes all. There's no fixed post. So the correct way to describe the system, in my view, is winner takes all. And that describes the mentality as well. Winner takes all of available power. Point one. Point two, the South can learn from the North. The, uh, the, the North learned from the South that it was better to have proportional representation. It took a hard learning, a civil war. But we can now learn from the North if we're Southerners. In the North, they have uniform district magnitude. You heard Teresa describe that. So each constituency returns the same number of people. That means there's no favor shown to the larger parties. Here in the South, there are uh, still plenty of districts with only three candidates elected. And that's unjust, improper, disproportional. So any future Irish Electoral Commission has to have uniform district magnitude as its first priority. But Thank it, you for it's giving very us fond the of opportunity. Ba- it's very fond of county boundaries as well, the Irish electoral so system, sir, county because of loyalty to counties and represent- County boundaries are colonial jurisdictions, which this state need not respect, except in GAA. Yeah, well, the, well it was the GAA which popularized them, indeed. And, <laughs> been a major obstruction to proper planning, our regional planning, our meaningful participatory planning. Yeah, but they're in the Irish mind. They'll be very hard to dislodge. They're there. They're part of the furniture as well. I think we could certainly increase the district magnitude uh, while still respecting the psychological attachment that people have to uh, county boundaries. So how about, uh, finally, uh, Henry Patterson, before going to Machnav 6, which I do want to ask the President about what shape that will be, but what what about the way the centenary has been marked? You are part of the advisory committee um, in Northern Ireland about the centenary of Northern Ireland itself. How how has that panned out in your view? Well, there's two aspects. The committee itself, pretty wide range of viewpoints. On the, on the formation of the state, the behaviour of the state. But w- we work well together. I think we achieve various things that we achieve. I think the most, most important probably is to persuade pressure on both the NIO and the Public Record of Office of Northern Ireland to release files on the personnel files on the B-Specials, the tens of thousands of Protestants who joined this organization uh, from uh, 1920 onwards. And these files, when we started, these files weren't going to be released for decades, perhaps even longer. And so we've got the, 
they're all going to be released. This will be sensitive files too, yeah, right, for some people, files, yes? sensitive files. So that's um, We produced a book, which a centenary book, which has got some really good essays. Some of the, I mentioned Connell Parr. Yes. Connell Parr's great book on basically a Protestant working class imagination as manifest in various uh, playwrights from the 20s through uh, until, uh, until today. Uh, he's got a great piece, in it, and there are a lot of young scholars, and it's the most recent research in that book. Um, the broader, pro um, it's been pretty predictable, low key, but low key. And there's been a lot of quite interesting stuff going on in local, local communities, so we've done a lot of. Love of place is a very important matter, isn't it? Yeah, and, and things work out very differently. It yeah, was, yeah. I think John White pointed out a long time. It's a small place, but the differences between like where I was brought up, North Down, and um, Straban, Sion Mills, these border areas. I, mean, I didn't understand them. <laughs> so I mean, things like that, um, and that ca that came out in the way the commemoration was dealt with. And so that grassroots level. So it's a sort of mixture. And before going to the president on Machnov six, anybody in the audience want to talk about the phenomenon of Machnov itself and whether okay. how useful they found it or otherwise? Yes. Yeah. Your name is. Uh, my name is Dara Machnovuna, uh, and the I'm History here. Teachers Association as well, aren't you? History yes, Teachers. Yes. Uh, in fact, yeah. I'm here uh, with my colleagues from the History Teachers Association of Ireland. Um, and I would first of all just like to, to acknowledge the, uh, the series of reflections and of Machnab that have been going on during this decade of centenaries. And I'd like also, if I may, just to remind ourselves that um, while it's a joy to look at the, the senior girls here uh, from Mokris who have chosen to study history at senior level, there was an incredible irony at the launch of the decade of centenaries back in 2011-2012, because that same time, the framework document in education was also launched, which was proposing that history become uh, an optional subject at, uh, at secondary level. Now, we in the History Teachers Association have been involved for many years in trying to retain history as a core subject within the curriculum, uh, and it was a battle uh, and as I say, we were just so aware of the irony that on the one hand, here is the decade where we are commemorating uh, the great and, and complex history of the foundation of the state, and at the same time, the Minister for Education at that time wanted to marginalize history. We then fast forward, and we've traveled this journey with you, Professor, uh, through the, the decade, and we also want to acknowledge your championing the cause of history and the importance of history in education. And it was a great day back in October, the 1st of October 2019, where the Minister for Education announced formally that history was now to be given a special position or privilege within the core curriculum. So, you know, it's been an interesting journey. Uh, we've had a lot of people on our side, including your good self, Mr. President. But uh, I think it should be. Uh, acknowledge that it's a, it's a great, great time to be a history teacher uh, and also to be a student because every student in this country up to junior sort level now will be given the opportunity to learn their history, 
which was fragile uh, for a, a time being. Um, so it's been a very, very interesting journey, John. I'd, I'd like uh, that acknowledged as part of the Mockna series as well. Yeah. Thank you very much, yes. Pre President. Yeah. I, I totally agree that it was very important uh, that, that what would have been a very bad decision was reversed. And hopefully we don't see it again. Uh, it's a very good time for, for to be studying history, but it's a good time to be reading history. The quality of what is available now is so wide-ranging. I do want to say the question about about uh, about how it, the commemoration is being done. There's a huge difference between what Mahmoud is attempting to do and and what I call eventing. It is simply very important uh, to deal with hi histories substantively as best we can by introducing new material and new evidence. But it has to have the ring of authenticity. But what's entirely false, it seems to me, is to take contemporary expressions of the state and start offering these as if you could have a standard version in which you have the same event for just about everything that ever happened. It is very important that there be a ring of authenticity in it. So when one is speaking about women in different circumstances, the people can feel that this material is being taken seriously in the same way. That's why I put in the prison period, because you have to touch it. But the idea that you could have some kind of ritualistic, contemporary expression of the stage in any of its form, uh, as that would, that would be a substitute for this. It is what it is. It's a substitute. And it's a very inadequate substitute. It has to be, there's nothing more encouraging than to be inviting the citizens. It's the citizens reflecting on what went before. It isn't only the case of the state making representation. And when the state does it, it's a very difficult thing to have my sympathy. Because the history of which I will be dealing with again isn't good in relation to that. Sometimes they have decided to solve their problem by silence. Sometimes they have decided by totally inappropriate manifestations. Uh, and other times by simply just simply saying you just have the one formula and you just roll it out for just any aspect of our history. That just isn't, it won't do anymore. And I think that not just young people uh, deserve better. We all do. And Machnov 6, the final Machnov will be? Mugnav 6 uh, will be recorded. On the 7th, it will be, re, re, I must be very accurate myself now about this. It will be recorded on Thursday, the 10th of November. It will be broadcast and available on the RT player on Thursday, the 17th of November. It will be titled Acts of Commemoration, Pride, Pain and Perspective. And what it's going to be looking at is how reflection has been made across the different seminars we've had in relation to the power the personal and the public has been handled, what impulses and imperatives have been at play in each case of different versions we've heard, and who decides what to commemorate and how and in what form and how can we do it best and how can we do it in a way that is pluralist and inclusive. That's Mokhnovsik is a look back and also dealing with as well, perhaps you might think you say as well, is that uh, uh, how we can deal properly with the, the, the past that leaves us open to the present and uh, enabled in relation to different models for the future. Yeah. And that too will eventually then be published in book form as well and in ebook yes. form as the first three Mokhnovs have, president.ie, uh, if you want to source that ebook, it is free. 
Yeah. My thank, it remains for me to thank our audience here and to also thank, thank Theresa Reedy um, and all our panel, um, Lindsay, Erna Byrne, and uh, Henry Patterson, and of course to Brendan O'Leary, who is our key speaker uh, for his very distinguished paper and his continuing efforts, and also to President Higgins for the initiative of Mocknuff and for hosting us here in the Hyde Room in Orison of Thrawn. And thank you also for watching, wherever you are, anywhere in the world, to this event. Thank you indeed.